Hi everyone and welcome to a, another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host Howard Sides and today we're going to finish up our study of the letter to the church of Philadelphia here in Revelations chapter 3 verse 7 through 13. Uh, it has taken me a little while to get back to this but um, sorry I just, my plate's been full as <laughs> far but anyhow, uh, so we'll try and finish this up in this podcast today. Uh, so let's read our passage uh, once more. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. 7 through 13, I think I said 11, but it's verse 13. Uh, verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the keys of David. He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, again, we covered the first of two thoughts that this letter is divided up into. Uh, the first thought was uh, the call to behold, which is covered in verses 7 through 11, and so we're going to pick up the Second and final thought in this letter, which is the call to behave. The call to behave, verses 12 through 13. And that thought is divided up into uh, two parts, the first being verse 12 and the second, of course, verse 13. Uh, the first thought in verse 12 is the divine initiative. The divine initiative. And then verse 13, the divine invitation. The divine invitation. Now in verse 12, and in this letter, uh, I wanted to, before I forget, I want to make a point and uh, point out some things that uh, Christ repeats. Uh, he repeats the word behold three times. Uh, first time in verse 8, second time in verse 9, third time in verse 11. And if you didn't catch it here in verse 12, he uses this phrase, my God, four times. Obviously, he's trying to get a specific point across that has to do with him saying, my God. Uh, it's not our God or your God in that he is talking to us, but he says, my God. Now, Christ uh, makes the faithful believer three guarantees of encouragement in the phrase, will I once and I will twice. 
So he's making the believer three guarantees here. Once when he says, will I? And then twice when he says, I will. Uh, the will I is him that overcometh, will I make uh, a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Now that word overcometh is the Greek word nikeo, nikeo, which is N-I-K-A-O. Nikeo means to subdue, to conquer, to overcome, to prevail, or to get the victory. So when he says him that overcometh, Talking about the believer that overcometh. How do you overcome? Uh, you subdue. You conquer. Uh, you prevail. You get the victory over this thing. Now, what is it he's saying, him that overcometh? Uh, he's talking about holding on to that, uh, the word, and not denying his name. Mentioned up there in verse 8. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, because, the, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, uh, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. So then he comes down here uh, to verse 12, and him that overcometh, that's what he's talking about. Uh, now this overcoming, uh, and in the writing of the King James Bible, it's F, E-T-H. Uh, common usage today would be I-N-G. Overcometh and overcoming carry the same thought, and that is that this is a process, and not just a process, but a present continuing process. In other words, overcoming is not something you gain the victory over, and then it's done. Uh, you must stay vigilant. You must stay ready. Uh, to do that, you must continually read the Bible. You must continually pray. Uh, think about God. You put the thoughts and things of God in your head and there is no room for the evil thoughts now that's not saying that they won't come they will come uh, we are made of flesh as much as we have the Holy Spirit in us but being made of flesh that's the sinful part of us it, that, that's just living in this world that's something that we uh, have to face each and every day so this overcometh is a continuation of the fight a present continuing of the process. Uh, but it will have a termination. It will have an end. And uh, Christ is telling those who have faithfully fought the daily battle uh, will be made a pillar, a steadfast and immovable pillar. Now, notice that next phrase that he uses there, a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar in the temple of my God. And you think, well, What's special about being a pillar? Why, why not be a piece of furniture on the inside? Why do, why, what's so special about something on the outside? Well, it goes back to the thought and the idea of Solomon's temple uh, talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, Solomon's temple had two distinct pillars set on the porch out in front of the temple, one to the left, one to the right. And they had specific names. The one to the left was named Yaquin, Yaquin, which is J-A-C-H-I-N. Yaquin means he will establish, being that he is God. God will establish. Okay? On the right was a pillar named Boaz. Now, Boaz, if, if you've studied the Bible any length of time, if you read through the book of Ruth, that's uh, a 
very prominent name. That's a very common name of a character in the book of Ruth, and it's actually who Ruth ends up marrying, a kinsman redeemer. Uh, and that's a great picture there. But th this name Boaz means in him is strength. Him, of course, representing God. So in God is strength. So Joachim uh, talks about the part of God that will establish, and then Boaz talks about the part of God that will strengthen. So they both, uh, both names signify steadfastness and permanence. And a, a common, just a thought off the top of my head in re, re, reference to that, uh, most of the ruins, I guess you would think uh, the common name for them, uh, most of the ruins that we see to, left over today from many of the temples that were built in that day, uh, the only thing left are one or two or a couple of these columns. The columns last, seem to last longer than the structure itself. I don't really know the reason why, other than saying it may be because they're standing. Um, I know, for example, if you're transporting a piece of glass, uh, like a big piece of glass, a sheet of glass, uh, you don't want to do that laying down. If you see a truck uh, hauling sheets of glass, they're standing up. Uh, it gives them strength. And so to stand gives us strength, and to be a pillar means that we're standing. So that references the, the strength that it comes from there. Now, in going all the way back to the uh, book of Exodus, in the times of the tabernacle, the mobile temple of God with the people of Israel as they were wandering through the uh, wilderness there. There's a verse in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 21, and it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. So during the day when they were on the move, God would lead them as a pillar of of cloud. He would lead them as a cloud. He would be in the cloud. And during the night, it was a ball of fire or a pillar of fire as it is. There was a pillar of a cloud and a pillar of fire. And that's how God would lead them when they were marching or moving. And that's how they would know they could see him. Now, one of the first uh, Bible studies I did as an adult Sunday school teacher uh, was something that had been pointed out to a, a dear lady in the church of ours. Um, I was kind of going through a tough time. Of course, there's the shock of teaching, you know, an adult Sunday school class. And, and I did. I, I The thought crossed my mind. I was like, what in the world do I know that I could teach these people that are probably being Christians longer than I have been alive? You know, <laughs> that thought crossed my mind. And it was like the Lord uh, impressed upon my heart uh, just be the vessel. I'll do the teaching. And, and I, it was like he just clearly said it to me. Now, I didn't hear it in an audible voice. He just laid it on my heart that he said that. But but I, I want to turn, I, I didn't have this wrote down, but I'm going to turn over here and kind of give you the concept of what this study was. It, was. it was a chapter in the book of Psalms, chapter 91. Psalms 91. If you've never... Uh, read through the book of Psalms, there's some great strength, some great writing in there. Some, some of the most uh, 
celebrated writing, even in secular history, is poetry. And the book of Psalms is a book of poetry. And of course, uh, one of the main writers of the book of Psalms was David. Now, he didn't write it all, uh, but he wrote many of them. But here in Psalms 91, thinking about this tabernacle and, and how uh, these pillars showed the strength and, and the permanence, the steadfastness here, and how God led them uh, through as, in the days of the tabernacle as a pillar of a cloud and a, and a uh, pillar of fire. Uh, read Psalms 91. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Well, how do you create a shadow? A shadow is created by a cloud. Uh, verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. That talks about safety and security. My God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. And I've actually done a study on part of that about he shall cover thee with the feathers and under his wings. And the picture of that is a uh, mother hen. Um, of course, we would think of a chicken. Most uh, common would be a chicken, but it'd be any uh, bird, aviary creature, maybe I guess I could say. Uh, but the idea about covering them with the feathers and under the wings, it's not where the baby chicks go to run under the wings for protection. But if you'll notice, if you've ever watched them long enough, uh, the baby chicks are just like us. They're curious. They want to get out in the world and see what's happening. They want to see what's going on. And the mother hen knows if there's danger nearby, those baby chicks need to be protected. And so she'll reach out with that wing and pull them under her. They don't even know that there's danger around. So she has to reach out with her wing and pull them up under her. And, and that's the picture there about covering us uh, with his feathers and under his wings. Uh, verse 5. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. Now those two verses there are covering dangers that are in the day and dangers that are in the night. And of course, when he covers us with that cloud in the day, uh, e even these Israelites, when they were going through the wilderness, uh, didn't understand some of the things that God was protecting them from, such as the uh, pillar of fire at night. Uh, it keeps a lot of the diseases that come with darkness and the pillar of cloud during the day protected them from things that could have Happened, you know, sunstroke and things like that. And and a, a common thing for us uh, to think about in, in that aspect is uh, uh, bacteria. Now, of course, we know what bacteria is today. And I'm pretty sure it was Louis Pasteur that discovered bacteria in the late 1800s. I'm pretty sure. Uh, so, you know, we didn't even know that that was a thing until he discovered it in the late 1800s. And that was one reason that led to the Black Plague. People just weren't washing their hands. They didn't know. And a lot of these autopsies were 
uh, or sick people were operated on by doctors who weren't washing their hands and things. So, of course, there was the transference of diseases and bacteria and things like that. Infection uh, killed a lot of people. They just didn't know. Um, continuing here in Psalms chapter 91, verse 7. A thousand shall fall at thy side and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For, she, for he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Now, of course, this is uh, one thought there in verse 11, that he shall give his angels uh, charge over thee. Do we have protective angels looking out for us? I think that verse clearly says it. Uh, he shall give his angels charge over thee. Thee is singular. That is a promise to every single member of his church. No one's left out. Everyone that's a believer, I believe, has a guardian angel. Uh, and it says to keep thee in all thy ways. Very specific, detailed orders there. Uh, your ways must be his ways, is the thought there. Your ways must be his ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands. That's nurse-like care. Uh, there's nothing more comforting uh, then when you see a baby in trouble, crying, whether it's hungry or it's sick, and the mother cradles that baby in her arms. Uh, I know I've mentioned it before. We have a grandbaby. She's about six months old now. And she doesn't cry a lot, except maybe when she's hungry or, you know, when she's bored and uh, things of that nature. Uh, but when her Mimi or her Papa or her mom or her dad pick her up, uh, she usually settles down, but I tell you, there's there's nothing like the mother picking up that baby, and that baby just calms right down. And that's that's the picture here of, of those angels' protective power over us. God gives them that power to protect us like that. So uh, it says, they'll bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Uh, these are things that are trivial to us. Uh, yet harmful. It's not the fact that it's a stone, but it's the fact that we trip over things. Uh, uh, you know, uh, again, when we're children, uh, there is the tendency to, to trip and fall a lot. And as we get older, we get more experienced. We learn to step over the crevices, to step uh, over the root or the rock sticking up out of the ground. As little kids, we're not so careful looking down at where we're going as much as looking up to see where we're going to. So uh, they protect us about from things that, that we may think are, you know, not that big of a deal, but in the end, they could hurt us pretty bad. Uh, thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. This is a picture of the conqueror. Uh, would place a foot on a prostate enemy, signifying complete subjection. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder. The lion and adder, of course, are things that uh, represent uh, temptation to us. And it says, thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, talking about we can conquer them, just like we're talking about in our, our text here in Revelation, overcometh. Uh, 
uh, and Concord carry the same ideas. All right, uh, verse 14 in Psalms 91. Because he hath set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. And, th and this is God talking to man. Because the man hath set his love over me, God, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name. And that name is Jehovah. And we'll, there's actually a comment about his name here in Revelation. We'll pick up that in a minute. Verse 15, he shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now you notice in those verses, we did the exact same thing. We talked about those three guarantees in Revelation. Here are four times he says, uh, three times he says, I will. And then once in verse 16, he says, will I. Those are the promises, those guarantees that he makes. Uh, so uh, Psalms 91 ties very closely in with our thought here. And that's a, a very great passage to read uh, and study up on. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to make a note of that to add it into my notes if I ever teach through this again to reference back to that. I, it, it just kind of, I guess God just gave that to me to give to you. So uh, again, Psalms 91, I, that's been a, a anchor of mine for quite a while now, those verses there. All right, now, uh, continuing the thought here. <clears throat> In uh, the phrase Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, again, where it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. These uh, pillars signified the very person and presence of God. Now, you remember, uh, or maybe you don't, but when God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle, he gave him specific orders on what materials to use, how to make them, where to put them, uh, how to carry them, and how to build the structure. And when the structure was completed, uh, Moses held a, a ceremony and prayed over it. And it and it says, uh, I, I can't remember, I know it was in Exodus, but it says that, that the Spirit, uh, the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, came down and dwelt in, in that holy of holies place in that tabernacle. It was the very presence of God himself in that tabernacle. And if you don't know much about the tabernacle, um, you know what, I may have to do that. I, I did a study through the tabernacle uh, about the typology in all of it, and it, it's great. But one of the key things about the tabernacle was when they set up camp. Uh, now remember, there are 12 tribes for the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel. Uh, there would be three tribes on each side. So the tabernacle sat right in the middle. And those tents of the three tribes to the north, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the west. And their tent doors faced inward towards the tabernacle. So every time they would open that flap and open that tent, the first thing they would see would be the tabernacle i.e. the very presence of God in the midst of them. The tabernacle was not set to the outside edge. It did not 
set up in the middle of his favorite son. It was right in the middle of all of them. They all had equal access and equal uh, position, if you will, uh, to where that tabernacle was. It was right centered in the middle. Okay, uh, the next phrase in uh, Revelation here, verse 12. Uh, him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And then the next phrase, he shall go no more out. He shall go no more out. Now, this is a direct reference to this specific group of people in Philadelphia. Because if you remember in the uh, historical part, we talked about it with all of those earthquakes where those some of those people were so scared to live in their houses that they they moved out into the plains uh, for fear of another earthquake taking place and their house just collapsing and falling on them. Th this is signifying that and you will have to go no more out into the field. You're in a place of safety and a place of security in my temple. Uh, the next phrase, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And again, there's that phrase, I will. That's the, the first time he says, I will. In verse uh, 12, he says, will I. Remember, we talked about the three guarantees there. This is the second one where he says, I will write. And he uh, says this phrase, the name of my God. I will write upon him the name of my God. Well, you say, well, what is the name? It's, it's God, right? <laughs> well, it's a little deeper than that. It's a specific name. Now, four times uh, in verse 12, Christ uses that phrase, my God. And Christ only uses this phrase in the whole Bible on three occasions. Uh, the first time uh, was in separation. The first time was in what we call separation in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. And he says, and about the ninth hour, this is uh, right towards the end of the crucifixion there. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, when he took on himself all of our sins, of course, he had the presence of sin upon him. The father being holy and righteous as he is, could not have a part with that sin. So God literally had to turn his back to Christ because that sin was upon him. Okay. Now, Christ, having the relationship with the Father that he did, could feel that. He could recognize that. He knows what's taking place. And so he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he took those sins upon him. Uh, the second time he uses the phrase uh, is in substitution. In substitution. First, separation. Second, substitution. And that's talked about in two verses. First one is in John chapter 20, verse 17. Uh, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 says, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ.
Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Christ became the ransom for our judgment. And what that basically means, simply put, is that uh, God told or basically showed Adam and Eve right at the beginning uh, what it says in the book of Revelation. For the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. So when we commit a sin, we are passed under that judgment. There is a penalty, and that penalty is a death. And if we do not have a payment for that sin, then we must die. I mean, it's just that simple. Now, Christ became what is called the mediator, the go-between. And by dying on the cross with pure blood, and by pure blood, what I mean is that he had not committed any sin. He became a righteous sacrifice that Christ, that God accepted for payment of all of our sins. And in the Old Testament, remember we just talked about the tabernacle, uh, they would have to sacrifice all of them animals, which were symbolic. They were references pointing forward to something. Those animals uh, were not a payment for the sins they committed because those animals couldn't, I mean, they could not pay for our sins by shedding their blood, but it was uh, kind of like what you'd say, a down payment or a IOU that was pointing to the day. It was symbolic. It was a reference to point forward to the day when Christ died on the cross. That was the only sacrifice that God could accept and would accept to pay for all the sins ever committed in the world, past, present, future, all of them. And he died once, and all he had to do was die once. So if, if he had to die uh, each time, then his blood wouldn't be that pure. It would just be like he, as a human, died in the place of us as a human, so that we wouldn't have to die for our sins. But when he died once and paid for all those, it's because he had holy blood, righteous blood, that a holy and righteous God could accept. Okay, so that, that's that picture of ransom for our judgment. All right, um, the third type uh, or time that he uses this phrase, my God, was in sonship. That's S-O-N, sonship, like father, son, sonship. And that's here in verse 12, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, I will write upon him the name of my God. Now, Christ associates himself with those believers in their labor their hope, and their love, okay? So three times, in separation, in substitution, and in sonship, he uses that phrase, my God. Nowhere else, just those. Uh, the next phrase, the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. So what that is saying is that these believers will also receive the gift of citizenship in the city of God. They become members of the city of God. Uh, in describing the New Jerusalem, uh, Ezekiel's last words were, and you can find that in chapter 48 and verse 35. Ezekiel 48 and verse 35. And he says, in describing this New Jerusalem, it was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. That's the name of the New Jerusalem city of New Jerusalem, the Lord is there. Now this phrase in Hebrew is Jehovah 
Shama, if I'm pronouncing that right. Jehovah, S-H-A-M-M-A-H. Jehovah Shama, the symbolic title of Jerusalem. Now, the title Lord is the name Yahweh in Hebrew and Jehovah in English. Now, Jehovah's meaning is the self-existent one. Now, in studying uh, Jehovah uh, and what the names are, uh, th this actually comes out of Schofield's notes. I have uh, the actual King James Bible that I have um, is a Schofield study system. I don't know what year it was put out. Uh, ho hold on a minute. I think it's a study Bible 3. Uh, I think it will, but basically a lot of people that have a, a, a King James Bible that, that really do a lot of teaching and preaching and all, they usually get a Schofield Bible. Now there are some Schofield notes that I don't agree with. Um, and it's kind of like I've said before, you know, our pastor tells us, you know, sometimes you just have to uh, pick the bones out. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Choked on a bone. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, you do have to kind of pick out the notes. And, and some of them are good. Some of them are not quite right. And, uh, but he does have in this study Bible 3, uh, he has more notes. Uh, there's more uh, graphs, more charts, more things like that. And, and he talks about uh, the, the meanings and associations of this name Jehovah. And I'm just going to read it uh, as he has it. So I'm giving Schofield credit for this uh, that I'm reading here. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. He says, and I quote, uh, The first appearance of the name Jehovah in Scripture follows the creation of man. It was God, Elohim, who said, let us make man in our image, in Genesis 1.26. But when man, as in Genesis chapter 2, is to fill the scene and become dominant over creation, it is the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, who acts, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. This clearly indicates a special relation of deity in his Jehovah character to man and all scripture emphasizes this. Jehovah is distinctly the redemption name of deity. When sin entered the world and man's redemption became necessary, it was Jehovah Elohim who sought the sinning ones in Genesis chapter 3 verses 9 through 13 and clothed them with coats of skin verse 21 Genesis chapter 3 a beautiful type of the righteousness provided by the Lord God through sacrifice. And that's talked about in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. The first distinctive relation of himself by his name Jehovah was in connection with the redemption of the covenant people out of Egypt. And that's talked about in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. In God's redemptive relation to man, various compound names of Jehovah are found, which reveal him as meeting every need of man from his lost state to the very end. These compound names are uh, Jehovah Jireh, I hope I'm saying that right, J-I-R-E-H, which in English is the Lord will provide. 
meaning he will provide a sacrifice. Just as he clothed Adam and Eve, he provided the sacrifice. When he told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then stopped him at the last point, he provided the lamb. He provided the sacrifice. Just as he did with Christ, who died for all of us, he provided the sacrifice. That's Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. Uh, the next one is Jehovah Rapha, which is R-A-P-H-A. Jehovah Rapha, which means the Lord that healeth thee. The Lord that healeth thee. Now this refers to physical healing, but spiritual healing is implied. And of course, the only spiritual healing we can gain is from God. We can't spiritually heal ourselves. Uh, to get forgiveness, to get clean again, to, to get back to the uh, holy state that we should be in, we have to go through Christ, our mediator, to the throne and ask forgiveness from God the Father. Uh, the next one, Jehovah Nisi. I hope that's right, Nisi. N-I-S-S-I, -S -S -I, Nisi. And that means the Lord is my banner. And by that title, banner, it means that he fights our battles for us. The, the only thing in the Bible that we're told about fighting uh, as far as a command that we're given uh, that, that I know of, uh, it, it, we are supposed to flee and we are supposed to fight. I do know that. But the, the most common uh, command we're given is to stand. That's neither an offensive move or a defensive move. We're, he's to fight our battles for us. If we fight him, we're going to end up losing anyway, right? So it's best to let him fight our battles for us. Uh, the next title, Jehovah Shalom. S-H-A-L-O-M. Uh, if, if you have any uh, Jewish friends or if you know anyone uh, who is from the nation of Israel, you'll hear that term, Shalom, a lot. And that basically means peace. Jehovah Shalom means the Lord is our peace. Through sacrifice for our sins, we can obtain fellowship once again with him. And I, I could go on about, you know, God puts within us, when, when we're born, we have something in each one of us that is seeking for that peace. And, and the only way to find perfect peace is through Christ. That's the only way to find it. Uh, people seek it in drugs. They seek it in alcohol. They seek it in sex. They seek it in money. Uh, they seek it in fame. They seek it in fortune. And many times uh, th they run themselves to the point of no return where they end up committing suicide or, or they end up killing themselves through alcohol, abuse of alcohol or, or other drugs and things like that, looking for that peace. They're trying to find that peace. And a lot of times they don't even realize it. Uh, it's such a sad state, but, but that's what it is in us. It's that inherent thing that God puts in us looking for him. Uh, the next title, Jehovah uh, Sidkinu. Sidkinu. <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, it's a strange word. It's T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U. Again, T-S-I-D-K-E-N-U. Jehovah Sidkinu. I think that might be right. Uh, which means the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Uh, he will send a king to set things straight in the millennial reign, which we'll get to in a couple of chapters later. Uh, and he will save his people and they will live safely. Righteousness equals straightness. 
So only he who is righteous can set things straight. That makes sense, right? Okay, uh, the final one, Jehovah Shammah. Jehovah Shammah, S-H-A-M-M-A-H. And that means the Lord is there. The Lord is there. It signifies his abiding presence with his people. So that's uh, the notes that Schofield has on the name of Jehovah. That's a pretty good study there. And, and there's actually a significance, if you'll notice in your Bible, uh, how it spells out the word Lord, uh, lowercase L-O-R-D, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. They all mean something different. Okay, I don't have time to get into all that, but I just wanted to give you that association of the name Jehovah and what it means. All right, in uh, our study in Revelation again, the next phrase says, and I will, this is that third guarantee, I will write upon him my new name, my new name. Now, this is Christ speaking. We know him as the names Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, uh, here he talks about a new name, a name that we are not told here what it is. And you may ask, well, what is this name? Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, now, Philadelphia, as a city, was familiar with taking on a new name. Now, you remember we talked about it a little bit. I, I, one of the big ones was after that earthquake in 17 AD, uh, the Roman Emperor Tiberius showed them favor. And in gratitude, Philadelphia renamed their city Neo-Caesarea, which means the new town of Caesar, uh, to, to show respect, if you will. <clears throat> and then later on, when Vespasian was kind to them, uh, they renamed their city Flavia, which means Vespasian's, uh, or which was Vespasian's family name, uh, Flavia. So they were very common, uh, they had common knowledge about this changing the name or having a new name. Now, here... Uh, his original name uh, is Jehovah as our great Redeemer. Uh, then his name was Jesus as our great Savior. Uh, but this new name, we don't know what it is yet. And actually, the Bible talks about that new name later on. Revelation chapter 19, verse 12. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it says of him, uh, being Christ, his eyes were as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns, and he had a new, oh, sorry, he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So there's that reference to that new name. Uh, now, some things, of course, are yet to be revealed to us, and we will be like uh, the Queen of Sheba was uh, when she visited Solomon. And she said in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6 through 7, it, it tells us what she said to him. She said, uh, and she said to the king, it was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believe not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. And that kind of reveals that this new name, we're not ready for it yet. Uh, we have to see it for our own selves to fully understand 
what it represents to what it means. And we know all through the Bible, uh, people were given names that meant something of their character. It represented something of who they were. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's the way this new name is going to be. Now, Paul tells us too in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, uh, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And we've all, uh, of course, this is a study in the book of Revelation, and we'll get to it towards the end of the book. Uh, there is a description of heaven there uh, and, and some things that happen. As, as we go through the book, we'll see uh, some of the pictures uh, that you'll get in your head. They don't do it justice. Uh, just like Paul warns us there, <clears throat> uh, you, you're going to have to see it to believe it. <laughs> That's a phrase we use today, and that carries certainly with this thought. Okay, so uh, that's the first thought under uh, the divine initiative in verse 12. Now we uh, reach verse 13, and there is this what we call divine invitation. And, of course, we've talked about this before. I'm just going to repeat it again. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The first thing to note is that plural form of the name church there. Church is. That's an address to all of us. An address to all of them, all of the churches, and to all of us. Now, the order of this phrase uh, changed in the letter to Thyatira. From the previous ones, the previous ones being Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamos. Now, in those letters, uh, this phrase preceded the promises to the overcomer. But in the letter to Thyatira, and in the last three being uh, Sardis, right? Yep, Sardis, Philadelphia, and the next one coming, Laodicea, which is the last. The phrase follows the promises to the overcomer. And in his Bible commentary, William McDonald comments on that. He says, and I quote, This may indicate that from this point on, only those who overcome are expected to even have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. End quote. Okay, so that completes our study of the letter to the church at Philadelphia, which we've talked about. Uh, in title is A Loving Church. And uh, we'll get next week into, or next week or next time, hopefully it ain't a whole week, I'll try and make a goal of doing one of these a day, but that seems to be pretty difficult to do in these days and times, <laughs> especially working the night shift as I do. So uh, I get to them when I get to them. But anyway, uh, so I hope you've enjoyed that. Um, I'm I feel that this letter um, talks to me personally more than do the others, uh, but yet I don't want to have you thinking that we can bypass the other letters. Uh, they all are addressed to us. They all have something that we need. Uh, it, it's just to me that this one seems to hit a little clo closer to home, I guess, than the rest of them. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this study of this letter. And that you'll join me next time as we begin the last one here in this study of the church of uh, a letter to the church of Laodicea. And then we'll get into uh, charging forward in the rest of the book of Revelation. There's a lot of information in this book. 
and and like it said this is is for us to have peace and understanding not not to be afraid of the future because we know how the future is coming out god wrote this book for us uh so that we may know and does it reveal everything well no it reveals what we need to know and the, the main point of that is that god is in control uh things happen as he sets them and allows them to happen um and that's where we gain our peace and understanding and know that he's in control. Okay. All right. So thank you uh, once again for joining me uh, in this podcast. And I hope you'll uh, join me on the next one. And until then, uh, I say remember to pray. Pray for each other. Uh, pray for, uh, if you're an American, pray for our nation. Pray for our president. He needs our prayers, whether you agree with him or not. Um, the Bible does command us to pray for him. If nothing else, we can pray for his salvation. Uh, and just, uh, um, you know, pray for a Congress, Senate. Uh, if you're in another country, uh, you can certainly pray for your president, your prime minister, uh, whatever your head of state is there, uh, Politburo or... Uh, parliament or however it is I, I don't know how all the governments are set up in all the countries represented here uh, but you know what I mean and we can pray for each other uh, for all the listeners of this podcast and for our brothers and sisters in Christ all around this world I'll tell you this is a day where uh, we all need prayer uh, it's certainly a day when the Christian is not uh, respected uh, or not even generally recognized as a uh, common human being as other people are anymore. So we are certainly coming to the end. So anyway, all right, I'm lingering on here. Uh, once again, thank you for listening. I hope you have a great day. God bless you. Thank you.